Dr. Thank you. All right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, none of that is impressive. If you give schools money, they will give you degrees. If you just keep giving them money, they'll give you degrees. So, all right. Uh, we got a lot to do, and so I'm going to jump right into it after this caveat. If you want to stop me uh, with a question or a comment, you're allowed to at any point. Um, the best kind of educational experience is when we never follow the outline and we go down rabbit holes. So if you want to jump in at any time, uh, feel free and uh, we may or may not follow the outline, but who cares, right? That's, that's kind of the fun of something like this. But let's begin with this. Let me make the case that Christianity is the only religion that in its own sacred texts gives you the recipe for debunking the religion itself. No other religion does this. Uh, one of the classes I teach is world religions in, in college, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to bag on other religions. I'm just saying it's not their thing. If it turns out that, um, that the Buddha never existed, or that we find out that what apparently he said he didn't really say, which is probably true, Buddhism still stands today as it always has. It's a, it's a, a, a nice sort of meta-narrative, like an overarching story that gives me a sense of belonging, a little bit of a sense of purpose, stuff like that. It doesn't really matter if this stuff happened historically or not. It doesn't matter if the Shinto myths um, that, the, that the islands themselves and the people came from the kami of the gods. That's not the point. But not so for Christianity. Christianity says this is a claim on reality. And St. Paul goes so far as to say that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christians are to be pitied more than all. Let me give you my translation of St. Paul's uh, 1 Corinthians 15. If you show me the dead bones of Jesus, the gig is up, and you shouldn't be a Christian, and if you are, you're kind of an idiot. Because you're believing a lie. So there's a whole, like, from the 1800s up until, I think, you know, maybe uh, uh, the middle of the 20th century, even beyond, where there's a lot of Christians who said, we can still maintain Christianity without the historical resurrection. They skipped over this part. If Jesus does not come and die and rise for me, I don't need him. I don't need him as my guide. <laughs> I already know that I'm supposed to be nice to my wife. I need a savior from the times I wasn't nice to my wife. Right? And so St. Paul says, really, this is a claim on reality. Jesus was alive, and then he was dead, and then he was alive. Again, and there are eyewitness accounts of this, and theoretically this can be verified or falsified. Show me the dead bones of Jesus, right? So I think this gives us a sense where now we're in the realm of apologetics where I'm asking reasonable questions. Did Jesus actually perform this miracle or not? Did Jesus actually rise from the dead or not? These are questions that can fall under the umbrella apologetics. Don't worry, we'll do will define apologetics eventually. Let's think about this. <clears throat> I think um, maybe this one's in your back pocket that maybe you want to pull out if you got nothing else when you talk to somebody. 
that you want to you want them to know about Jesus. And I, and I think you say something like, I think you got to do something with this Jesus character. Nobody's been written about in the history of the world more than Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. I don't think you can. I don't think you can be a respectable human being walking around this world going, I don't know, Jesus. He seems like a nice guy. I guess I never really thought about him. You don't do that with, with Joseph Biden, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, George H. W. You don't do that with the latest pop star. You don't do it with the latest. NFL quarterback controversy. You have an opinion about everything. Are you telling me you don't have an opinion about the guy who has been written about more than any other person in the history of the world? I think to be a respectable human being, you got to do that. I would suggest that there's only four options for your convenience. They, only, they all start with the letter L. <laughs> uh, maybe he's a legend. Maybe what we hear about Jesus is so so way out there that it's, it's legendary, but no historian worth their salt would go down that road. Even the ones that are, are purposely anti-Christian, not just not Christian, but anti-Christian, will admit that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are pretty good histories, right? So I don't think you can say, I don't think you can say Jesus and, and his stuff was, was just a legend, right? It'd be kind of like, you know, maybe the earth's flat. I don't know. I'm not convinced either way, right? Okay, fine, but I'm not going to... The conversation's probably over, you know, at that point. So I don't think you can, you, can just, you can just shrug him off as legend. Well, maybe he was a liar. Maybe he lied about being true God, and the whole thing is just a ruse. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty good liar. I've been doing it for 44 years. I'm 44. I've been doing it for 44 years. And when we lie, here is why we lie. We tend to lie for money, sex, and power. Power is kind of a catch-all, like revenge and, and all that kind of stuff, right? When we lie, we, we tend to try to hurt somebody or to gain something for ourselves. Very rarely, unless we're, we're something wrong with us, would we lie to the point of hurting ourselves? Now, our lies do hurt us. I get that, right? But that's, we, didn't, we didn't intend that to happen. So I'll take a lie a very long way because I'm a stu stubborn guy. Um, but they start bringing out the six-by-sixes and the nails. The gig is up. I'm not lying myself to a crucifixion. So you have to ask yourself the question, why would Jesus lie? And there's no reason why he would lie. So I don't think that's a legitimate answer. So you have one that's left, and that is who he claimed to be, and that is Lord Almighty. Right? And I think, uh, I think this is a good way to maybe start off a conversation a little bit nicer than the way I said it. But just to say, hey, I want you to think about this, that I don't think you can walk through your life just dismissing this very important character. You don't do that with anybody else. And maybe actually think about the options here. Either Jesus is a, is a bad person because he's lying or he's, he's crazy or something like that, or is he is who he claims to be. Oh, I skipped lunatic, sorry. Maybe he's crazy. Maybe he's flat out crazy. You guys remember Albert Schweitzer? Certainly hear that name, that German... Uh, medical missionary uh, down in the continent of Africa. He actually did his, um, his PhD dissertation, I believe, on this question, was Jesus crazy? 
And you look through all of the, the evidence of, of what Jesus said and did, and there's no indication clinically that there was something crazy about him. Unless, unless you have an a priori, that's a prior conviction, of saying anybody who claims to be the Messiah is, is default crazy, is by definition crazy, right? So if they're going to eliminate the possibility that Jesus could be the Christ, could be true God, um, then you cannot find... You cannot find anything that's crazy about him. In fact, sometimes he seems like the only sane one in the story, right? So I don't think you can just brush him aside and say he's crazy. One maybe caveat about here, and this is sort of inside baseball, but there's a guy named Bart Ehrman from the University of North Carolina who likes to write um, against Christianity a little bit. And he's an expert on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he knows full well about this argument. By the way, this is not my argument. There's nothing, I've never had an original thought. This is all from somebody else. Um, <clears throat> he knows about this argument, and he would say, I think there's a fifth possibility, and that he was a Jewish man that just got caught up in the religious fervor of that time and, and convinced himself that he was true God, but he really wasn't. And I go, I'm pretty sure that falls under the category of crazy. Right? So this is actually, I think, a powerful argument um, at least to get the, the conversation going. Okay, I'm going to stop there for a second. Anybody got any comments or questions or want to challenge me or anything? All right, let's keep going. All right, let me give you a couple definitions before we get into uh, what an historian would do with uh, this stuff. Sorry, we, uh, we lost something here. Okay, sorry about that. All right. Um, apologia is a Greek word that means like a defense. So if you had a lawyer that was advocating on your side for whatever reason in a, in a courtroom and, and said, um, here's evidence A and here's evidence B and here's evidence C, therefore this is my conclusion, that would be called an apologia. It is an apology. So English, we got, it's one of these words that kind of gets messed up. So we don't mean apology like, I'm sorry I ran into you. We mean like if you are, uh, if you are a Lakers apologetic uh, or apologist, you'll defend the Lakers. I don't know how you could do that right now, but you would defend the Lakers, right? All right, so what we mean is using a, a reasoned defense for the Christian claim, specifically the resurrection of the dead. So one good definition of apologetics is, um, from, comes from 1 Peter 3, um, always be prepared to give an answer for the reason that you have. Now, I, I don't know that Peter was talking exactly what we talk about apologetics today, but he uses the word apologetics there, or ap apologia there. What we mean is, I'm going to use my reason to defend the Christian faith with gentleness and respect. That would be a good definition. Let me give you a couple different ones which I did not write down. One would be, I am trying to employ a well-rounded liberal arts education for the sake of presenting the gospel. That's a mouthful. What it means is this. If my skeptical friend wants to talk art, or history, or science, or law, or philosophy, or whatever, I'm willing to engage them with these things with the mindset that says everything, since all truth is God's truth, 
can somehow be related to Jesus Christ in a very, in a very profound way. So the way I usually teach apologetics now is I'm going to say, what does a historian look like? Look, what does an historian think about the evidence? How about a scientist? How about an artist? How about a lawyer would look at these different things? Because it really does matter. I actually get quite a few doubters in my office and flat out atheists who want to talk about these things. And one of the first things I do is just ask a bunch of questions because I don't know where they're coming from. If this, is, if this guy has, has a mathematical mind, then that's probably where I want to go, right? If she's an artist, that's where I want to go. So I'm employing everything I got. And with the Christian church in this profound worldview that has provided for the Western world has given us, I'm going to use everything I got for the sake of the gospel. That's apologetics. All right. Finally, apologetics is this. It's a ministry of caring. We actually care about people and their skeptical thoughts. We're, we're, we're willing to listen to them. Um, I help out at the local Lutheran high school, and uh, they wanted me to teach apologetics there, and so I go over there too, and I give the kids some rules. And I say one of the first rules in apologetics is you ask more questions than you give answers. Just show them that you care. Have a conversation with them. This is not about beating people down and shutting them up. This is about caring about them. Okay, good enough. All right, so that's apologetics. Here's the biblical mandate, sort of mandate's kind of a, a strict word, um, but 1 Peter 3.15, uh, maybe you can see that. But, uh, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give you the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So. I think that's a, that's a pretty good mandate if you would ask me. Um, maybe that's too strong of a word, but I think that's good. Uh, maybe some examples if you're, if you're wondering, well, where in the Bible do we find this? Uh, every time there's a miracle, <laughs> every time there's a prophecy, um, every time St. Paul reasoned in the, uh, in the synagogue would be examples. Um, but I like this story. Um, this is St. Paul before Festus and Agrippa. He's been arrested specifically for preaching the resurrection of the dead. And he's on trial for it. The Jewish uh, leaders have thrown him on trial, just like Jesus, before the Roman authorities. And the Roman authorities say to him, like, do you think that you can convince us of this resurrection from the dead? And Paul answers sort of like, well, maybe. He says, these things were not done in a corner. And I take that to mean these things were done in the open. They can be verified or falsified in the normal way that we verify or falsify information right now. So if you're in a courtroom, which he was at that time, and he said, how do you find out what is truth? How do you make decisions that, by the way, affect lives, like sending people to execution or throwing them into prison? Well, you look at the eyewitness evidence, you build a case, and then you judge it. And all I'm asking you is that you look at the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ask about the evidence and then make a actually open-minded decision. And so I think this is a prime example of apologetics. Okay, so we do have something in the Bible. Um, uh, this one I think is interesting too. This is from Romans 1.20. In Romans 1, St. Paul is saying, listen, you people in Rome, whether you're Jewish or you're Gentile, um, we're all in the same boat and it's a sinking ship because <laughs> of sin. 
We're all headed to death, and there is one Savior. That He's trying to make that, and then eventually he's going to say that salvation comes not by following the law, but by grace alone. That's the f early chapters of Romans. What's interesting is he says this. I'm going to start with four cents. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. What he's saying there is this. You can't come up to me and say, well, I never read the Bible, I'm without excuse. He's going to say, no, you should have known right and wrong. You look into the world, you can still know at least that there is a God and that there, you have a conscience and there's a right and wrong. You're without excuse. What's interesting is that the Greek word that gets translated without excuse is related to apologetics. So I like to think about it this way. You don't have a case. Your worldview that says there is no God or your worldview that says God's okay if I do this. Your worldview, you don't have a very good apologia. You don't have a very good case. And so reason is important in all of this and reasonably understanding what God has said and how he has come to us both by scripture but also through nature. Those are different things, but they're both from God. Okay, um, let's do this. Let's move on to an historian. Okay, what is an historian supposed to do? Well, it's, it's, it's building a puzzle. I look at archaeological evidence. Um, I go into um, the archives and I, and I catalog things. And then I make conclusions about not only what happened historically, but why things happened historically. Right? This is what an historian is supposed to do. And a good historian is supposed to, supposed to keep an open mind. Like kind of like a Sherlock Holmes kind of thing. You know, you know, eliminate all the other possibilities and whatever is left, no matter how improbable, must be the truth kind of thing, right? So I'm trying to keep an open mind and I'm trying not to have an a priori conviction. A priori is just a fancy way of saying I have a prior conviction that's basically gonna color the way I look at facts. That's, that's instead of saying I have an open mind, here are the facts. So one of the things about apologetics is to say to my skeptical friend, dear skeptical friend, all I want is a, is a level playing field. I just want you to be truly open-minded and honest and use the same criteria that you get to truth for anything else and apply it to my claim here. I'm not saying I'm going to convince you. In fact, I know I can't. Only the Holy Spirit can do this. Right? We'll come to that later. But I, I just want you to be open-minded and don't dismiss it just because you don't like it. Okay, so an historian. Let's think about this for a second. All right, so we have this, we have this claim that Jesus was was dead and then, and then um, he was alive again. He was alive and then he was dead and then he was alive. And we have some eyewitnesses who seriously believe that this is true. All right, so let's start with some basic minimum facts that every historian's gonna believe unless um, they have a very, uh, uh, um, unless they're basically either conspiracy theorist or Islamic. So Islam does claim officially that Jesus never actually died on the cross. We'll come back to that later maybe. Most historians are going to notice this. Number one, that there was a guy named Jesus of Nazareth, that he existed. Number two, 
he got himself in a little bit of a jam, and the Roman soldiers killed him. He died by crucifixion, that he was buried in a tomb that was known by people. This was not, he was not thrown into a field. People knew the location. At some point, that tomb was empty. Everybody agrees upon that. And then maybe the fifth one is that there are people who believed that they saw him alive, and I mean really believed it, that they were willing to die for the cause. Everybody believes that those five facts are true. Atheist, Christian, whatever. So now I ask myself the question, well, where is the body of Jesus? Now, an atheist may say, well, Jesus has never shown up again, so ha, 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 he must, he must be dead. Well, they may be surprised when he does come back, right? Um, but the opposite can be asked, too. Where is this grave? Where, where, where is he, right? Show me the bones of Jesus. So I ask myself, as kind of an historian or investigator, I say, well, who would have access to the... To the to the um, bones of Jesus. And really, there's only three groups. The first group is the Roman authorities. The second group is going to be the Jewish authorities. And the third group would maybe be the disciples. So I'm asking myself the question, who knew where the tomb was, who had a vested interest in this, and who theoretically had some sort of uh, opportunity? Just think means, motive, opportunity. Who had the means, motive, and opportunity? Okay, so the Roman leaders, would they have done something with the body of Jesus and pretended that he rose from the dead? Absolutely not. Pilate's got one job, and that is to keep order. And he gave in to the mob and killed Jesus. And he says, now I'm, in fact, he, what does he do? He brings out this bowl and washes his hands of the thing, as if that would wash his soul away, right? And he, and he goes, I don't want to deal with this anymore. To think that they would do something is ludicrous. So I'm going to eliminate them. The Jewish leaders, uh, they're the ones that wanted him dead in the first place. In fact, they believe more than his disciples. They don't trust Jesus, but they believe in Jesus' words. They take him more seriously than his disciples. Because his disciples are like, how many times does his disciples hear, don't you know that the Son of Man has to die in three days rise again? And they're like, I'll stop it, Jesus. You know. And, but the Jewish leaders are like, we remember he said that. And so we think that some funny business is going to go on. And so they're kind of paranoid, and they insist that the tomb be sealed and be guarded. Yeah? So there's no way that they would fake a resurrection. That leaves me with the pro-Jesus crowd. Okay, first of all, what do we know about the pro-Jesus crowd at this time? Not exactly the bravest men in the world at this time. Right? They have all scattered. Only John shows up to the resurrection. Peter has hit rock bottom. He's embarrassed. They were trying to stop all of this, but it was, it, it, you know, I mean, they are, they are not exactly the type of group that would come together and form some sort of conspiracy. And even if they had that ability, why would they do that? Why would you lie? Remember why we lie power, money, sex. What did they gain for their faith in the resurrection? Almost all of them a martyr's death. 
Just think about, um, I'm jumping ahead to lawyer for a little bit, but just think about for a little bit, speaking of jumping ahead, yes, all right. Speaking of, uh, speaking of like a lawyer, I mean, I don't want to brag, but I'm kind of a legal expert because I've seen all of the law and orders, right? So <clears throat> I know that when a witness goes up to the stand and that witness um, has a reason to lie, that the defense attorney is going to point that out. Oh, you were there at the moment of the crime with my, uh, with my client? Um, how do I know that you're not the one that actually did the crime and my guy's innocent? In fact, what did you gain for your testimony? Oh, you had a plea deal? Yes. You had a plea deal where you were only getting probation and my client's up for 20 years, right? So I'm going to attack the credibility of this eyewitness. But then I know that if there's like a mob uh, case and the eyewitness is up there and is giving everything up for their testimony, right? Maybe they have to be relocated. They're putting their lives in their hands. Now that's a credible eyewitness. It's not foolproof, but we can understand when we can, we can sniff out somebody who is lying and somebody who is not with reasonable certainty. Lawyers are very good at this. Right? And so when we look at these eyewitnesses who say, I saw that Jesus was alive, they don't gain anything for their witness testimony. In fact, they lose something. So that makes them pretty credible. All right. So um, if you're following along, and you don't have to if you don't want to, but if you're following along, um, that's kind of what we're doing down here in the bottom of page one and saying, okay, there was eyewitnesses there. There's no reason that they would lie. Uh, there's no reason that they're crazy. There's no reason to believe that there was some kind of mass hallucination, all of this kind of stuff. And so therefore, as improbable as it seems, Jesus rose from the dead. I can come to that conclusion. Let me stop right there and go down a different path. Because I think um, all of you are smart enough to, to kind of say, that's cute, Pastor Burton. But I know for sure that that is not going to, that's not going to work with my skeptical friend. They're going to laugh that off. And maybe rightfully so, right? And maybe in the back of your mind, you're thinking from a theological point of view, this is not how faith works, <laughs> right? Faith, you don't reason people into faith. So let's talk about those two things for a second. Um, <clears throat> number one, as an apologist, as an evangelist, as a human being, you don't have to get to certainty. And dare I say, you cannot get to certainty. That certainty is something that is elusive to the human mind. And here's why. For two reasons. One, I don't have all of the information. I am finite. And the second one is I am deeply flawed. If you don't like the sinful word just yet, that's fine. Maybe I'm talking to my skeptical friend here. But these two things limit our capacity to fully understand everything only via our reason. Yeah? So um, you've all been, your mind is, all of your minds have played tricks on you, right? Um, you, can, you can look a mirror. Um, uh, the, the, the angles of things in reflection off water change and stuff like that. Imagine, imagine someone cuts you off on the freeway and um, you are so angry at them, right? And you start this inner monologue on how uh, important you are and what a jerk that person is, right? 
and um, <clears throat> you, you have rationally come to this conclusion. And uh, you follow them down the street, and they pull into the emergency room at the hospital and run out with, with like somebody who needs to get into the hospital right away. Now you have more information, don't you? And your conclusion has changed. Here's your information, what you see. Here is what God sees. Let's just stop and have a little bit of humility there. Right? So my reason, I don't care how smart the person is, there is a limit to that. We don't have all of the information. So reason is not going to necessarily get us to certainty, not if we're honest. The other thing is, is that we're deeply flawed um, and our emotions, and sometimes very sinful emotions, overtake our rationality. And you've all fallen for this. Um, so you go to the department store and you see these awesome jeans and they're listed for $499. And, um, <clears throat> oh, but there's a tag there just for today, $79.99. Now you're all smart enough to know that it costs $4 for that pair of jeans. I don't care how bedazzled it is. <laughs> and you know that you're getting ripped off. The only question is, how much are you going to get ripped off? But in your mind, they have done this simple trick to convince you that you are getting the deal of a lifetime to the point where you, this is what you say to yourself, I've heard this from my daughter's and my mother's own, my, and my wife's own mouth. We, I can't afford not to. I can't afford not to. This is never going to happen again. This pair of jeans for $79.99. You are not reasonable creatures. <laughs> we are not rational, are we, right? Um, and by the way, that very simple thing applies to college. There was a college that tried to do this, just like I think it was J.C. Penney that tried to do this, was say, we're just going to give you the flat-out price with no sales, and <laughs> their sales went down. Yeah. How silly is this? For those of you who kids are going to go to college or whatever, nobody pays full price for college. Everybody's like, it costs like $1,000, $100,000, whatever. Only if you're rich or stupid, right? You, you, nobody pays that. And there was a college that tried this, but we have to do it. Even at, at this beautiful Lutheran Christian college that I teach at Wisconsin Lutheran College, your kid signs up, and the next day they get an $18,000 scholarship called the President's Scholarship. Everybody gets that unless they're Bill Cade's daughter. We're going to charge him full price. Okay, so we are unreasonable people. So let's go back to the original thought. If I cannot attain certainty, and by the way, if you demanded certainty of everything in your life, you would never get out of bed in the morning. You'd be in the fetal position too afraid to get out of it. How do I know? How do I know that when I walk down that sidewalk that a sinkhole doesn't appear? Happens all the time in Florida, <laughs> you know? Um, all of you drove here. Um, <clears throat> how do you know that there's not um, a bomb strapped to underneath your car? That will blow up when you turn the ignition. I mean, you don't know for absolute sure, do you? Do you check under your car every time? You may this time, but I don't. And here you are. What would your mother think? Just walking down sidewalks, turning ignitions, taking all these chances in life, right? Um, we don't go by certainty. We go by probability. 
And the probability of that happening so much is we don't even cognitively think about it. But I'm not absolutely certain about it. I mean, the probability, you know, I don't want to be offensive, but none of you are probably important enough for somebody to assassinate you. So you're probably okay, right? You know, I mean, you're probably okay. The probability is so slim that we don't think about it. Here's the point. When I'm talking to somebody, we live in a world where we think we get to certainty, but we can't. I don't have to get to certainty when I talk about Jesus Christ. I have to first get to plausibility. Is it plausible that Jesus rose from the dead rather than not? And if that person's honest, they have to say, yes, all things are possible. Then my next step is maybe I get to probability, and I use the arguments when I have, and I say, if you keep an open mind, actually, maybe it looks maybe more probable that something happened, man, something happened. If you have all of these people willing to die for this, and they saw that Jesus alive, and, and you can't explain it by a mass hallucination, you can't explain it by fraud, I don't know, I can get to probability. I'm never going to get to certainty. Because we can never get to certainty. And by the way, that gap between probability and certainty, that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. And this is not, uh, this is pulled out of context a little bit, but I, I can't think, help but think of Hebrews 11.1, 1, where faith is being certain of what we cannot see. <clears throat> certainty is a gift from God. Let me even go back. Faith is a gift from God. Let's even go back to all the way to, to your birth. There were a few things that you did not choose for yourself. You did not choose your name. You did not choose life. You ever think about that? You did not choose to live. You did not choose to live. You did not choose your name. You did not choose faith. So just think about this. It's not like you were in your mother's womb and during the second trimester you're like, all right, she's been pretty good to me. I think I'm going to trust her. It was not a cognitive decision. And you may be saying, well, this is instinct. There's evolutionary processes and stuff like that. I dare you to go to a maternity ward when that baby has been pulled out and is placed on the chest of that mother and the father's cutting the umbilical cord and say, how beautiful is that animal instinct that there is a bond between mother and child? You may get slapped really hard. <clears throat> Faith is a soul thing. It's not just a cognitive thing, it's a soul thing. And it's very rarely cognitive in, this, in, the, in the way we make a decision. The toddler trusts mom and dad, and that, there's not a decision to be made there, right? So I have no problem, by the way, with the Holy Spirit saying, I'm gonna give faith to that infant. In fact, Jesus said, the faith of the little child, children is better than your jaded faith you adults, because you, you think that you know better, right? Faith is not just a cognitive thing. So I cannot reason somebody into faith. I just cannot do it. And if I could do it, right, if I could do it, then it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a pure kind of grace thing where God just comes and, and like, a, like, a, like a mother and a child and just says, trust me, right? It would be, it would be the child just sitting there and finally at you know, age four or five going, okay, I'm ready to make my decision whether I want to be a part of this family or not, right? That's not love, that's something else going on there. So when I'm an apologist, I should never expect to come to Jesus' hallelujah moment with my fancy arguments. It doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit does 
the work of faith. That's just how faith works. And all I can do is say, hey, here's the information. I think it's pretty good information. And I think other worldviews, they have some things that are lacking, and I'm willing to talk to you about that. I'm willing to open up the door here a little bit so that the Holy Spirit can do his work. Okay, um, that was a lot um, for the first 45 minutes. Um, let me, let me uh, do one more thing before we get to lawyer. Um, so um, I'm all over the place here. I don't know if we'll... All right, before we get to lawyer. Um, were you ever told as a child when you said, but how do we know that Jesus is God or how do we know that this miracle happened or whatever? And um, some adult said, you just believe it. And then if you <clears throat> ask more questions, the adult says, you just have to have faith. And then you ask more questions and finally the adult's like, just shut up and believe, right? You know, um, <laughs> some way, somehow, we've all had that experience. And uh, th that's not great, is it? It's a good way to make an atheist, <laughs> right? Uh, this is not great. And the atheist is right uh, that we have caught ourselves into circular logic. Now, <clears throat> if you want to be really fancy, it's called a tautology. And that circular logic is where the, the premise, my statement of, of fact, the reasons for the statement of fact is the statement itself. Yeah? So I say, uh, imagine I say, uh, the Bible is God's word and therefore trustworthy. Right? And the atheist is like, all right, I'll play along with you. Um, <clears throat> how do you know that? And you as a good uh, Christian say, because the Bible told me so. And the atheist is like, why do you trust the Bible? And you go, ah, duh, I already told you. It's God's word. It's trustworthy. And the atheist is like, do you not, do you not hear what's coming? Never mind. All right. Now, is it a true statement? It sure is that the Bible told me that it's trustworthy, and so it is. But how do I get out, for the sake of the skeptic, out of this circular logic? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If I can get to Jesus Christ's resurrection, not certainty, but plausibility and maybe probability, and he said the whole Old Testament, not one little jot or tittle, not one dot of the I or cross of the T, is, is going to fall apart. This is, this is God's word. Then I have good reason to believe that the Old Testament is God's word because I'm going with the guy who rose from the dead and not you. I think this is a little more complicated, but when before Jesus ascends into heaven, he promises disciples to send the Spirit to teach, I'm going to teach you all things. And I take that like not, I take that as you're going to have the ability to write, write this down, the scripture down, right? Like the Holy, the Holy Spirit will be given to you. That's what we call inspiration, inspirited, right? The Spirit is going to give you that case. And we have a, a couple cases within the Bible that we talk about um, this is inspired word, whatever. The point is, is that if I have something that can be theoretically verified, historically, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus claims to be true God, and Jesus says, this is my word, then I, I'm basing off this of facts, rather than just I believe because I believe. Now, 
By the way, I could do that circular logic with anything. I could do with any book. I mean, I could stand up here and say, I'm true God, worship me. And you're like, why should I believe? I just told you I'm true God, duh. Right? And you're like, oh, Nazis got me, right? I mean, this does not make sense. So it's important that we have this, this factual stuff. And I believe this is the balance of especially the New Testament that I don't think we always appreciate. And we kind of fight about it in the Christian church where we have some people who say, oh, it's a totally cognitive decision and there's facts that you can make a, a decision on to put your, your, your faith in Jesus Christ. And I, and I say to them, but the, there's also passages where the Holy Spirit does the work and quite frankly, I just talked about faith. Faith is, I don't know that it's, you don't reason your thing and you reason yourself into any kind of belief, very rarely, right? It plays a part, but it's not the full story. Then you have this other side that's going to say, how dare you even talk about evidence? Because if you talk about evidence, then you don't trust the Holy Spirit, and it's not about faith. This is one of those, those um, things where, in the Bible, God just asserts things, and they're both true, and we have trouble trying to reconcile them until we go, oh yeah, he's God, I'm not so smart. That yes, it is the Holy Spirit that gives you faith, but you are not left without testimony. Or John 20, these words were written. Why, you say, John? These words were written that you may believe, right? We are not left with this faith in faith thing. God says, this is what happened. Here are the eyewitness testimony of what happened. And by the way, to our original point, no other religion does that. They don't even attempt to do that. And it's not bagging on them. That's just not their thing. But Christianity says, this happened. This is real. You're not putting your faith into some sort of spiritual nonsense. This is facts on the ground. Right? Now, you're an idiot, and so you're not going to believe it. So I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. But just so you know... It's based on facts on the ground. I think that's the tension that the Bible gives us. Okay, so the top of page two is kind of I lay that out a little bit, getting out of the circular logic. Oh, by the way, I'll get you in a second. Oh, by the way, the atheist is always stuck in circular logic too. Like, uh, Jesus could not rise from the dead. Well, why do you say? Because people that die stay dead. There has been no case of anybody rising from the dead. And I say, but I just gave you one, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, that cannot be true because of my original statement, right? They're stuck in circular logic, too. Right? Okay. Yes, sir. Can you talk a little bit about um, contemporary history, which either confirms or refutes uh, the, the uh, accounts in the Bible? Yeah. So what does an historian today take a look, think about? Or? Uh, no, at the time. So people writing at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So um, we will get to a little bit of that. We actually only have three accounts um, besides Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. By the way, that's still really good for the time. We have um, Josephus, um, Tacitus, and Pliny the Younger. Josephus does not mention the resurrection. Pliny the Younger, uh, who is not an historian, but he is writing a letter to um, uh, the, the um, emperor at the time, um, says they worship Christ as God. And uh, Tacitus gives us some, some explanations of, of why, Jesus, why Christianity moves so quickly. None of them specifically talk about the resurrection of the dead. So um, we have 
we do have accounts where people are like, man, this Christianity thing is really catching on wildfire, and their leader, they believe, is God, and they worship him on Sunday mornings and kind of stuff like that. So it's not a direct thing, but it's a... Is that fair enough? Okay. okay. Um, let me talk about just a, a lawyer for a little bit, and then we'll come back into the lawyer argument. I will break in a few minutes here so that you can stretch your legs and stuff. So uh, a lawyer is very much going to be like an historian. He's an investigator. He's looking at what's going on here. Give me the evidence. And what can I prove? Um, trying to throw away kind of faith and a priori's and, and uh, prejudices. So uh, I, I throw under the textual evidence here in the, in, in the lawyer's thing. So um, you're all smart enough to know, ah, this is very cute, Dr. Berg, yes, yes, yes. But all of this depends on the reliability of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How do we know that pen to papyrus, this is what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually wrote? Wasn't there, certainly there was some funny business going on in the last 2,000 years. And so uh, we're going to kind of go through that pretty rapidly. I think it's a fascinating story. Either you think it's the most nerdy thing in the world or you think it's the most fascinating thing in the world. I don't know where you're going to be um, on this spectrum. But what, what we'll talk about is how, how did they copy Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And how do I know that what I have in the pew here or at home is what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John originally wrote? and the history of that. And one way to think about it is the chain of custody. This is like a legal kind of thing. Like where did, who had the information, right? Um, is there a gap there? Do we know, and, and that kind of stuff. And we're gonna talk about two gaps that, that, that are there and talk about the bibliographical test, which is how the text got to us. The internal test that is about the authors. Did the authors have the means, motive, and opportunity? And then the external test, which is, can I find stuff outside of the Bible that corroborates or uh, cast doubt on the stuff in the New Testament? So this is a good place to break. So um, why don't you get some coffee, donuts? We'll start promptly at 11. So we got six minutes. Does that sound good? Does that sound fair? All right. All right. Is this on? Yeah? Yeah? All right, let's calm down. This is Thousand Oaks, not Oxnard. We're classy here. I was going to say Mo Moore Park, but are you from Moore Park? Yeah, that's, that's not fair. Yeah. And we're from Oxnard. There you go. So I have offended somebody. <laughs> that's right. What was that? There was that one TV show that was like, and I'm from Oxnard. Not the good Oxnard by the beach, but by the onion, onion fields. Yeah. <laughs> All right, all right, all right, all right. Let's talk, um, let's talk about the New Testament text here for a little bit. So let me tell you first the story of how we get New Testament texts. So you don't have a Xerox machine, as we used to call it. Um, we don't have digital copies that we can email. Um, we have to do this by hand. So this is a, a, a labor-intensive, uh, obvious uh, procedure. And it may be just monks you know, writing things down as they have a copy. Go to a library and find it and copy. What also seems to be a, a pretty strong possibility is that, at least in some occasions, 
uh, we'd be in a room like this, and I got the copy of John, and I'm going to say, in the beginning was the Word, and you're all going to write down, in the beginning was the Word, and I say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and we're going to be here for a very long time, yeah? And um, these uh, scribes are serious about their business. They're serious about the written word, although it was an oral society. <coughs> and um, they were pretty good at it, but there's going to be mistakes, right? No doubt. Now, the reason why we, don't, we do not have the originals, so let me give you two definitions. In this nerdy world of transcripts, or uh, of, um, of manuscripts, we have an autograph is the original. So Mark writes pen to papyrus. A manuscript is hand manuscript copy. Um, this is the, the, the actual copy in the Greek language. We're not talking about translations here. We're not talking about people quoting it. So you have autographs original, manuscripts copies. We do not have any of the autographs. And there's no way we could have them. And the reason for that is papyrus, which is what these uh, New Testament documents were originally written on, there's no way they're going to last unless they were put into a dark, completely dark, completely dry place almost from the beginning. Dead Sea Scrolls, anybody? We'll get to that in a second. Now, um, do you have Walmart in California? <laughs> yeah, okay. Of course you do. And um, uh, you ever have a Walmart receipt and then uh, you, you put it in your desk drawer and like six months later the, it's almost like, like the ink's gone or whatever because they buy the cheapest paper always or whatever. That's papyrus. It's not going to last. So we have to rely on these copies. That's okay. That's okay. So we're going to copy these things and let's say there's four of you and uh, we're going to copy it here. One's going to go to L.A. The next one's going to go um, to uh, Las Vegas. One's going to go to San Francisco. And one's going to go to Reno. The one in Reno is going to be copied. That's going to go to Boise. It's going to be copied. The one in San Francisco is going to go to Oregon. It's going to be copied. Seattle, LA, San Diego, Tijuana, I don't know. And then Vegas, Phoenix, whatever. We don't have that original. We don't have the first generation. We don't have the second generation. But we do have enough around that we can piece together what was originally written. Now notice, the more copies we have, the better chance we are having at finding what the original is. So if all the copies that went to the Northwest say, in the beginning was God instead of in the beginning was Word, and everybody else has in the beginning was Word, I conclude that copyist made a mistake because it's all over there. It gets a lot more complicated than that, and sometimes the opposite is true, but you understand what's going on here, that we can piece together. Thank goodness for the nerds, the people that go out and spend their lives in libraries and look at all this stuff, right? We can figure out the puzzle piece. Now, the truth of the matter is, is that there are some places where we don't know exactly what the original was. But they are so few and far be between and none of them have to do with anything of any importance, and so it's not really a big deal. Did the original authors say Jesus Christ or just Christ? Well, in the end, does it really matter that much? No. Now, the point here is not to say, oh my goodness, so you're telling me that there's some, I don't know exactly what. That's just life about any document ever, right? What we're trying to say is, 
When you look as an historian, as a linguistic expert, as a textual evidence expert, and you compare the New Testament text with other texts, you're actually going to find out that the New Testament texts are so much better. So, dear skeptical friend, if you are going to say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not accurate history about Jesus Christ, then by your own admission, you cannot know anything about anything from that era. So we know nothing about Egypt, we know nothing about Rome, Greece, Babylonia, North Africa, most of Europe until we get into like, I don't know, you know, into like 1200, 1300, 1400. But you don't do that, do you? You assume that Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar actually lived and did what, and he said what he did. All I'm asking you is to play fair. So when we look at this, and I don't want you to quote these charts because um, these charts, um, they're pro-Christian to the point where it's a little bit too much, but the point stands. Um, let me, let me, I'm going to come back to this one. All right, here are some, um, I know it's not great um, sight here, but here are some, um, here's G Caesar's Gallic Wars. Now, if you're of a certain age, my age and older, and you took Latin in high school, and I say to you, all of Gaul is divided into three parts. That's the opening line of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars <coughs> tells us about his work in modern-day France. It was probably written about 50 to 60 years before Christ. Our earliest manuscript, remember that's a copy, is about 900 AD, so we have a time span of 950 years and we have 10 copies. Now we have more copies than that. We're counting strict copies here like big ones, but don't worry about the numbers, because the numbers are, are, are always moving and they're arguable. We're just trying to give you a basic idea here. Uh, the best one is Homer's Iliad, which you've all heard about. We have, um, we have a 150-year time span between when it was written and the earliest copy. Actually, it's to be more than that. That's a mistake. And we have 643 43 copies. The numbers don't matter, except this that we have 5,600 manuscript copies and counting of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the time gap, depending on how you count, is uh, about 140 to maybe, maybe 200 years. I think it's or 265 years. It's really shorter than that. We'll get, come to that in a little bit. Here's the main point. <clears throat> how do I know that Julius Caesar wrote what he said? How many mistakes would be there? And I only have 10 copies. Maybe they're all from the Northwest. You don't have copies from the Southwest or San Diego or whatever. We have that when it comes to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The point is, is that we know with more accuracy about what Jesus said and did through these four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, than any other fact in that era, and it is not even close. Even if we fudge the dates, even if we fudge uh, the counting or whatever, which, which we do, um, it's, it's, it's not even close, all right? Now, stay with me, this is a little nerdy. Um, let's talk about dating texts. So they did not write down like we do today. Um, we're so particular, we're a little, as a culture, we're OCD. We have to have dates for everything and archive everything. They didn't they didn't do that. They didn't even sign their name. In fact, that may be a little bit arrogant to sign your name to something. So um, we don't know when Matthew wrote Matthew or Mark wrote Mark or Luke or whoever. 
because um, they didn't put a date on it. So uh, historians try to figure it out. I'm just trying to give you an insight in how a historian figures something out like this. All right, um, and you, you can ignore that chart um, if you want. We know with, with pretty good certainty that James, the brother of Jesus, died in 62 AD from outside the Bible. We know from outside the Bible with pretty good certainty, not absolute, that Peter and Paul died in the Neronian persecution, that's by Nero, uh, in the, the mid to late 60s AD. Now, Luke wrote Acts. Acts is largely a biography of, of Paul and the other apostles. This is what Paul did. In fact, we're told that Paul, Paul wanted to go to Tarshish, Spain. Um, we, we're told that at the end he is arrested for preaching the resurrection of the dead. And he appeals to the Supreme Court. Remember, he's a Roman citizen. He pulls that card, and they send him to Rome. There's, there's a, a shipwreck in Malta. And then he finally makes it to Rome. And, the le and what you want to hear is, where did he go next? Was he found guilty? Was he acquitted? Did he make it to Spain? What happened? But we're not told. The story ends. Now, if Luke would have written this later, after Paul died, don't you think he would have at least mentioned that? But he doesn't. He doesn't mention James either. And so the historian mind says there's a really good chance. We can't prove it. We're not talking certainty. But there's a really good chance that Luke was written before these events, so the early 60s, if not late 50s. And Acts, if you don't know, is Luke 2. Luke, the gospel, came before Acts. So that puts Luke a little bit earlier. Most historians, most uh, uh, um, uh, biblical scholars are going to say Matthew and Mark came before Luke. Because in fact, Luke says, I made an, other people have written orderly accounts, dear Theophilus. Now here's my version. And, and it seems to me that Luke like, like kind of interviewed people, like did his research. He's an historian. And so that puts Matthew and, and Mark perhaps a little bit earlier than that. Now, why is that important? Well, there's good evidence to say that this was written in the mid-first century by Jewish Palestinian men, except Luke was Greek. And so they had the opportunity and the means to get this information down. So now, stay with me. This is kind of, gets kind of complicated. Imagine a timeline. Here's the events of Jesus. I'll do it from your side. Here's the events of Jesus. Here is the manuscripts, or the autographs, the originals, when they were written. And then here is the earliest copies we have. I got two gaps here that I have to deal with. Was there funny business that was going on there? Now, first ask the question, why is there a gap between the events of Jesus' life and when they wrote this down? Like, from our point of view, you write it down right away. Like, you have a newspaper reporter right there writing these things down, or a court reporter. Well, just think about it for a second. Two reasons. One is that it's an oral society. The second reason is the promises of the ascension. So remember when Jesus ascends into heaven and he says, don't worry, stay right here. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And these men are from Galilee. They're just visiting, you know, they don't have a permanent home in, in Jerusalem. So he says, stay here, I'm going to send the Spirit. 
And then he ascends into heaven and the angels come down. And what do the angels say? The angels say, don't worry, he's going to come back. Don't, don't worry about it. He's going to come back in the same way he left. What are you thinking? You're thinking Jesus is coming back next Tuesday at the latest. You're not thinking about writing this down. Right? Publishing's hard. Writing stuff down takes... You got to go, boom, speak these words. Not to mention it was an oral society. Um, they took writing seriously, but it was more of an oral society. You spoke and you memorized things. Their capacity for memorization was much greater than ours. So you, you were speaking these things. I don't think it's a little bit later than like, this may be a while, we better write this stuff down, <laughs> right? Um, and of course, then now they go, that's why Jesus said he would send the Spirit to teach us all things, yeah, that they would be inspired. So that first gap doesn't bother me. And in fact, in fact, um, you know, if someone says, well, you can't remember stuff 20, 30 years later, say that to a mother. Do you remember the birth of your first child? You can remember things 20, 30, 40, 50 years later with accuracy. Absolutely. You may not remember what you had for lunch yesterday, but you can remember some of those things. Now, here's the other thing to think about if someone gives you that, uh, that, that excuse. So let's imagine after Barack Obama's administration was over, somebody wrote a biography. The guy wanted to get the first one out uh, to be a bestseller, so it comes out like three months after the, um, the administration's last day in office. Um, and then somebody, 30 years later, writes a, 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 um, a biography of Obama, especially during the White House years. Um, do we completely dismiss the one that's written 30 years later? Of course not. In fact, that may have more accuracy because there's more information. There's, there's more research that could be done. Um, it's, it's, you know, you, you look back with history and go, okay, this, this, I can put this, this character in history in a little, in, in, in a better light, right? We don't dismiss somebody's biography because it was written 10, 20, 30, 100, 500 years after the event. Why are you doing that with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? That's not fair. And all I want you to do is play fair. Oh, by the way, side note. Um, if you're a Roman emperor, you're like the baddest dude that in, in the world at that time. You're like really, really important. Like you, you rule like a lot of land. You're lucky if you have one biography, maybe two. Jesus has four. That is highly significant in the, histor in, 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 in the world of history, four. All right, I know I'm jumping around the place. Uh, on page two and three, I have these uh, things uh, called the internal, bibliographical, internal, and external test. Let's go to the bibliographical test. We've already talked about this. This is the gap between the autographs and the earliest copies and the gap between the New Testament copies. Can I trace the information here? I think we can. So I talked about the first gap. I should mention that second gap. What about the autograph, the original, to the manuscript? Can we close this gap? Now, the, 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 um, the great thing we want to get to is about 325 AD, which is where we have the first, or I should say, the oldest, the oldest complete Bible. Right? We got, we got Matthew and John over here. We got a couple pages from Luke over there. We got all of Paul's epistles over there. We got half of Revelation over there. When we talk manuscripts, we're not talking about the whole Bible. We're talking about a, a piece of page. We're talking maybe just a little bit of a page, right? Um, and we're putting together this puzzle. But the oldest, boom, bound together, boom, the whole thing. 
That's called a codex, by the way, is a bound book rather than a scroll. The earliest one we got is the Codex Sinaiticus, which was found on the, um, um, the mountain uh, Sinai or in the Sinai Peninsula, literally in literally like in a broom closet at a monastery. Someone's like, "What's this thing?" <laughs> the biggest find ever, right? Okay. Um, there is another one that may part of it may be older. It's in the Vatican, but let's just say. 300, 300 to 350, that's kind of like, okay, this is what they thought the Bible was. Now we got to finish this gap, right? We have manuscript copies that we can piece together for a complete Bible, but there is a, there's a little bit of a gap there from the autographs to the copies. Now, the question becomes, was there a bunch of funny business going on there and they changed things to that before they didn't think Jesus was true God, and now they do. That, that's kind of the, by the way, Da Vinci Code was based off of this kind of theory, right? Um, there's no credibility to it. I'll, let me go down one more side note, inside baseball thing. Um, every pastor that's been here um, has a book on their shelf, uh, a Greek um, concordance um, that was written by a guy who came up with a theory he admitted he had no evidence of this, but he came up with a theory that said <clears throat> um, that there were competing Christian thoughts and um, <clears throat> there was um, um, lots of battles going on there and they would destroy each other's books. And then the one that won out later in a power play is what we call orthodox. But it's only because they won. It wasn't because that they were right, it's just because they won the battles. And it just happens to be the form of Christianity that we have today, um, where Jesus is claiming to be true God and resurrected from the dead. But how do we know that these other versions weren't actual, real, or not, right? So this becomes uh, uh, the basis for like Da Vinci Code and stuff like that. Now, this guy, <clears throat> um, it's either Arndt or Bauer or Ginrich for the pastors in there, I can't remember which one. <laughs> That's an inside joke. Um, said, I have, no th I have no proof of this. And if you're, this came in the 60s and 70s where we had um, this idea in Europe that has now made it over to America that it's not about truth, it's about power. You see? So it's not, it was a power play that they had back then. So can I combat that? I think we can. And the idea there is can I prove that early on that there were people who believed that Jesus Christ was true God and believed and trusted in the New Testament authors like we do today. Before Christianity became legal and powerful, after uh, 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 the Emperor Constantine came into play. So think 311 AD. Because that's the theory. Oh, these, these winners of history then rewrote the history and claimed that Jesus was a miracle worker. And so everybody would be Christian. But I can say that there was a vetting process that went through and there was a chain of custody of information that went through from the um, autographs to the earliest manuscripts to the first complete codex through this time of persecution. That people really believed and assumed that Jesus was true God and that's exactly why they were persecuted. Now, <clears throat> with that said, stay with me, I know I'm all, this is complicated, this is, this is seminary doctoral level stuff. So if you're, you're swimming, that's okay. <clears throat> what do I do with this gap, 
right, uh, between the, the originals and the copies. Is that gap insurmountable? I don't think so, and here's why. Imagine yourself, um, you're a, a 95-year-old lady. And so you're 95, so you're allowed to say whatever you want, and everybody goes, oh, okay, right? You know, what I'm, you know what I'm talking about. You get to a certain age, and you're like, screw it, I'm just going to say whatever I want. Right. <laughs> now, let's say that your grandfather was a very famous senator from the state of California. He had your mother at when he was 40. You were a tail ender, too. Your mother was actually all the way 40 when she had you. So you're 95, 40 years, 40 years. You see, I'm, I have this huge gap. <clears throat> Let's say that you have taken over the library of your famous grandfather, and you have carried on his philanthropical work. Feline diabetes, I don't know, maybe that was his thing. And, um, and so you, you're carrying on um, the, the foundation that he rose, uh, that he raised all the money for, and uh, you're, you have his papers and stuff like that. You are an expert on your grandfather. Now I'll imagine some young punk um, who wants to make a name for himself in academia writes a biography of your fairly famous grandfather, and he's on CNN uh, touting his book, and you don't like the cut of his jib. And he is saying some things that put your grandfather in a light that you don't like. And you hone in on some of the details, and you're like, that's factually wrong. That's factually wrong. I could see where he got that, but that's actually not wrong. I talked to the people who knew my father, I, our grandfather. I knew my grandfather, all this kind of stuff. So you call up CNN, and you're this 95-year-old lady who's spicy, and so they are like, we're going to fly you down tomorrow. This is a great TV, right? And you go on there and you rail on this guy. What is the point of this? <clears throat> that that gap, there is a collective memory that makes you an expert that goes back for well over 100 years. When John taught his disciples, John knew Christ, John taught Ignatius and Polycarp, who taught Irenaeus and these other famous famous guys. And I can say Irenaeus said Jesus was true God and true man, and this is what he thought was the reliable sources for that, for that information. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So I can bridge that gap by looking at other sources, and they can tell me what did those people believe in Jesus was, and what did they believe Scripture was. It's a puzzle piece, it's not perfect, but I can have a collective memory, much like you have a reliable co collective memory from your family of your grandparents and maybe even your grandparents. So some dude in 1970 in Germany who comes up with a the uh, theory that a bunch of drunk monks in a, an act of power play changed what we know as the Bible compared to this actual historical evidence is laughable is laughable. But the problem is, is if I, I bet you a lot of your neighbors assume that. Assume that something happened with the text through these 2,000 years. But if you actually dig in and take the time, that's not true. So the bibliographical test. 
do we have the transmission of the text in an authentic and reliable form? Certainly compared to other documents, we sure do, and I think it passes the test. And if you don't think it does, then you have to throw out everything that you know of history. And we don't do that. Yes, sir. So uh, the comment there was um, when you run, you can run um, uh, large amounts of text through computers to find different similarities between words, words phrases, um, meter, as you said, and, st and stuff like that. And you were saying that there's a Lutheran pastor who's done that and, and found similarities between the Old and the New Testament. Yeah. And maybe this points to one author, right? I think what it points to is that um, the writers in the New Testament were Hebrew-minded, right? And so uh, they would use Hebrew phrases that would be then translated into English or translated into Greek. Um, if any of you are bilingual, you know this, right? That there may be a way, a, a way of saying something, for instance, in Spanish, and then it gets it's said in English and it doesn't sound right, but you understand that that, that came from a Spanish mind. So. Um, I think that's very, very good information, right? That there, there's, we can see that there's maybe, this is authentic stuff. Let me, let me play off that a little bit. Um, we'll come to get to this when we get to the external test. But an, a good English uh, professor or an expert in literature will tell a young writer, do not ever try to write something in a different accent than yours. You have to live it and breathe it. Otherwise, you'll never, you'll, you'll, it'll be, people will spot it. Um, you know, you, you need to understand all the ins and outs. Just, there's just too much information there. I think that proves your point where there's, yeah. Um, for instance, um, I'll set the stage for the external test for a little bit. Um, so I lived here in California, as was mentioned, until 1991. Um, <clears throat> I went to high school, I went to college, I went to seminary, and I was a pastor in Minnesota, all in the Midwest. And I was a pastor in Minnesota for maybe five years. So I had not been back here, I don't know, close to 20, 20 years. And I'm doing a, a service at the local prison on a Sunday afternoon, and this guy stops me and says, you're from California. I can hear it in your A's. Can never get rid of it, I guess. Right? Um, now, my wife is a chameleon. Wherever we go, she'll just pick up the stuff. So we had one year in vicar, we were a vicar in Houston, Texas. Like three weeks in, she's like, oh, bless her heart. <laughs> now, <clears throat> it's not just the phrase, it's how to, when you use that phrase. Like she used it incorrectly for a while. She said, you know, oh, oh, bless her heart. Well, a true Texan knows that you use that 
before you insult somebody behind their back. You say, bless your heart, and then you're allowed to say something bad about them. When I moved, to, so I'm Midwest guy, I moved to Minnesota, and there were phrases that I, I'm like, I have never heard that before. Like, pretty near, pretty near. I'm like, what's pretty near? Pretty near. We're pretty, we're pretty near, um, we're pretty near Christmas time. <laughs> what? what are you talking about, right? Um, lunch and dinner were different in the rural area, right? So, um, uh, so it was barbecue. So I came, you know, I, our first potluck, which I had nothing to do with at the church, uh, they're like, we're going to have barbecue. I'm like, sweet, brisket and ribs. Barbecue in Minnesota is um, sloppy joes. <laughs> Seriously, this is very disappointing. They call it barbecue. I'm like, you can call it manwich, you can call it sloppy joe, but that is not barbecue, right? Um, lunch and dinner were different. Like, lunch is a snack, dinner is... Um, the, the noon meal and supper is, you know, supper. And uh, uh, there, was a, there was a local pastor who was a big boy, and he's telling me when he first got there, his, his farmers wanted to, uh, it was a rural area, wanted to take him out for lunch at 10 in the morning. He's like, geez, well, the farmers get up early. And they had coffee and a scone. He's like, listen, guys, I do more for lunch. And then he finally figured out lunch is snack or whatever. You don't know that unless you live there. Unless you live there. Let's, let, I'm just going to go down this path. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of things in the New Testament that could not have been faked. If they all stand alone, no big deal, maybe a coincidence, whatever. But you start adding them up, I'm thinking like a lawyer, this is a preponderance of evidence. You open up Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to call his disciples. Now if you read... Um, that his, uh, he's going to call Colton, Dakota, Jackson, that's with an X, um, and other ones, you're like, mm, I'm pretty sure those are white boy names from 20th century America. Those are not Jewish Palestinian names, right? Or if they're like, well, it's Oliver and Henry and Tom, Dick, and Harry. No, you know, well, Tom, but you know, like that's, that's, that's British names from the 1800s. They got the boys' names right. And even the goofy ones, like Bartholomew. <laughs> um, Simon, Jude, there's, there's a couple, Jesus, all that kind of thing. Those were famous names at that time, and we know because we look at burial records. If you don't have the internet, or if you didn't live there, you're living 100 years later in, I don't know, Rome or wherever, you don't, first of all, you don't put names down Anybody that's a good liar knows if you're getting a fraud, you don't put details in. Details would trip you up. And there's so many details in the Bible, you're like, oh, I didn't need to know that. Why did I need to know that? It reads like people were just telling you what they saw and experienced, and not a fraud. You can, you can, you can get a fraud. You can smell a fraud. Um, they're not going to give you a lot of details. The stories are straight, all that kind of stuff. Um, you start adding up things like agricultural things. The fact that some people call the Sea of Galilee the lake. And so Luke says lake once in a while. Why? Well, he's Greek, man. A sea is the Mediterranean Sea, not this little pond called the Sea of Galilee. He gets that right. You don't fake that. Let me, let me give you another from Minnesota. So we lived in Minnesota, um, <clears throat> directly west and a little bit south of the Twin Cities. And there's a river that runs from North Dakota down through Minnesota, south 
by southeast till it gets to a city called Mankato. Then it takes a hard left turn and goes north by northeast to Minneapolis, and then it empties up into the Mississippi um, in the Twin Cities. Now, this part of Minnesota is as flat as can be. You have two options, corn or soybeans. That's all you have to look at in this, this whole area. You only get, uh, you gotta go about uh, 60 miles north before you get into like woods and lakes. It's basically Iowa. All right. <clears throat> when I get to this little town, Wood Lake, which is about 15 miles south of the river, over from the, uh, Min Minneapolis, my people would start saying, now I already know they're weird because they're saying pretty near, and Ofer, oh man, I gotta tell you about Ofer. You know what Ofer is? You see a little baby, you go, Ofer cute. It got to the point where someone died, they're like, Ofer tragic. I'm like, you guys are just weird. Anyway, so I know they were. And they would say, I'm gonna go down to the cities. And I would say, first of all, it's over. If anything, you're going a little bit north, and as we all know, north is up and south is down. You don't go down to Alaska and you don't go up to Mexico, right? And it finally dawned on me. This is a holdover from Pioneer and Native American, there's a Native American reservation there. You literally go down. You can't tell you're going down, but if you follow the river, you go down. I have a colleague, at, two colleagues at the college that I live in that lived in a town 25 miles directly south of where I lived. They had never heard go down to the cities, ever. That 25 mile thing was enough to completely change their idea of how you talked geography. And they had never heard it even though they lived their whole lives down there. Did you know that you go down from Jerusalem to Jericho even though you go north? Because Zion's up here and Jericho's down in the valley. You just don't fake these things. Maybe one, maybe two, but dozens and dozens? It just seems like it's reading like this is what actually happened rather than something fake, okay? So uh, let's do internal tests really. Uh, uh, first of all, is it coherent? Um, we don't get into uh, non-hearsay evidence. Uh, just, to, just to say this, like somebody may say, well, this, is not, this would never be accepted. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would never be accepted in a courtroom because you can't, you, can't, you can't interview Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's hearsay. But there are hearsay exceptions, like ancient documents and stuff like this. So just kind of legalese there. I'm really more concerned with means, motive, and opportunity. So did they have the opportunity? Yes. They were first century Palestinian men or people that worked in around these things. This is really important because um, if, if, you're, if you're familiar with Roman Catholic doctrine, Roman Catholic doctrine would insist upon an apostolic succession. That if I was a priest, that I had to trace my ordination back all the way to the apostles. Now, <clears throat> Protestants are gonna reject that and say, that doesn't give you some sort of magical whatever. And so then we, of course, have this Catholic going inside whatever, and, and it becomes kind of a spitting contest. I'll say this, that Lutherans haven't, and, and the, there is a biblical sense of apostolic succession. But it's not because I was ordained by this priest, ordained by these priests, but that I am, the information from the apostles has come to me. 
that this is eyewitness testimony and this guy told me, this guy told who, who told me, who told, all the way until I got to me and my children. Now we're not, this is not some sect, we're not just doing some kind of funny business. This is eyewitness testimony that comes here. So it's very important for us to say, was Peter, James, and John, were they legit Jewish men in Palestine? Because if they were not, that's a problem for me because they're not eyewitnesses, right? So they are, so check mark, they have the opportunity. Here's a big one, means. Remember Bart Ehrman, the guy from University of North Carolina? He just assumes, and this is, this is uh, a modern way of, of thinking, he just assumes that everybody back then was stupid. And that they had, because they had lower rates of literacy back then, that fishermen from Galilee for sure were not literate and could not write this stuff down. Therefore, the New Testament is fraudulent. Well, first of all, Luke's, anybody know what Luke's job is? A doctor. Dude knows how to write. Can't read his handwriting, but he's got it. Um, Matthew, tax collector, for, for, for certain knows how to write. Okay, I, I get it. Peter, James, and John, fishermen. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not literate. Like, that's a big assumption. And that this, is, this is major trade routes are going through here. Like, if you're going to trade with, with Africa and Egypt is going to trade with Persia and modern-day Syria, Iraq, and India, you're all kind of coming through Israel. You can't tell me that they're, they're, they didn't pick up some of the lingua franca, that is the common language which would have been Greek. And if they're doing business, they at least know something. And remember, we, we moderns think we're so smart, but we're not smarter. We just have access to more information. And since we have access to more information, we know our information less and less well. Like all of you, you got grandkids and you're always complaining about the eh, kids and their phones and stuff like that, you know, and whatever. Um, the Greeks thought they did that about the book. They're like, ah, the book. If you write things down, you don't memorize it and you don't know it. So they're like, you and you're like, oh, you kids, you just look up on your phone for everything. They're like, oh, you kids today, you just open up a book, <laughs> right? The point is that when there's more technological advances in information, we have access to more information, but the trade-off is we know that information less and less. So put myself back into a person who is not being distracted 24 hours a day with useless information like we are, you don't think they had a little time to kind of pick up some of the nuances of Greek and stuff like that? So I think there's a good reason to believe that they had, they had the means. And from my point of view, if Jesus is going to pick some guys, you know, he's going to pick the fishermen who know how to read and write, you know? All right. So I, I find Bart Ehrman a little annoying there. Anyway. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, the idea that they all got together with a, in a powwow, there's no historical evidence of that. It seems that they, were, they spread out quite a bit. And uh, when, you know, the same people will criticize 
the so-called discrepancies in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If they got together, they would have colluded and got their stories straight. Um, and lawyers, I don't know this for sure, but lawyers will claim that they can sniff out collusion from a mile away. And I think that, you know, just think about being a parent or being a child, whichever side you were on, and, um, you know, your brothers, uh, you know, were playing uh, baseball in the house. I was just telling them that um, I used to rollerblade inside the house, uh, the parsonage. My, my mother had no control over us whatsoever, right? So let's imagine we're, we're playing stick hockey in the house, <laughs> and we break something, and we all say, all right, here's the deal. We're going to blame the dog. We didn't have a dog, but we're going to blame the dog, right? And uh, mom and dad could sniff that out a mile away. <laughs> and you're darn right they can, right? So the fact that you have four biographies coming at the same stories in different ways, and at first glance you're like, well, that doesn't seem like that matches up. But you're like, from that perspective, I can see it. From this perspective, I'm going to highlight these kinds of different things, right? You know this, right? Um, let's say you still have siblings, you get together in a family reunion, and they all tell the story of, of some vacation you, you took in you know, 1985 or whatever, and it's four different stories, and you're like, no, that's not the way it happened, that's not the way it happened, but you're probably all correct, you just remember different things, right? So I think there's good evidence if you have an open mind to say, these are just natural things, natural writers of what happened. They have no agenda. They're just saying, this is what happened. This is what I saw. And all of those little pieces, like the boys' names. The fact that the, fact that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed in the garden, but it was the smallest seed of the Palestinian garden. That some people call it the, you know, the lake of Tiberias and not the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. That you go, all of those kinds of things, I think, leads to that. Is that fair enough for right now? Yeah, I think it's, it, I heard, I think it was Dr. Montgomery who explained it this way. The idea where people used to call into his radio show that he used to have here in Southern California, yeah. and they would say, well, if there was more evidence, more eyewitness testimony yeah. of people that were outside the Bible, then it would be more believable. Mm -hmm. and, and his point is always to say that the Bible is not Mm -hmm. of books and letters. And what are those books and letters? Yeah. The ones that made it in were the eyewitnesses yep. or the close associates of the eyewitnesses. Yep. So it's not as though we sat down, we wrote this whole book, and here it is wholesale. They went out looking for what is the best yep. evidence. And if it is the best evidence, it's in the Bible. And if it's not, then it's not. Yeah. Yeah, th that, thanks. That, that's, yeah, that's well said. And I, sometimes we... I don't think we do a disservice by maintaining that this is God's word and it's holy and it's inspired as one author. Um, but we fall into that trap, right? Trap, and then therefore we present it to the world like this is just one book, where this is this actually is a collection of testimonies and prophecies and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think I think you got yeah, I, I always know your audience. All right, um, so then the motive. So the means and opportunity and motive, do they have an ulterior motive? Well, it's, you know, it's not like there's royalties. <laughs> you know, Peter's not getting royalties for this, right? There's no monetary reason to do this. In fact, uh, most of them gave up their lives for it. So let's say it passes the internal test. Now the external test is um, we do have, 
So I just mentioned some of the, the little goofy things that could not have been faked. That's external evidence, right? That, can, that corroborates what's inside of it. We also have um, people like Irenaeus, who was a disciple of John, um, and, and the chain of custody, who are going to say, here is, when I say they identify 24 books, um, you're like, well, I think there's 27. Well, what, what we mean here is that they mention 24. That doesn't mean that they're, they're saying the other ones are not in, right? He's just saying, oh, as Jude said, as Peter said, as Matthew, and they quote Matthew, or they quote Peter, and you're like, oh, that's from 2 Peter, and then he quotes 1 Peter or whatever. So that lead credibility to those books. That's how we're thinking historically. So uh, we do have the chain of custody through these men. Um, here's another one. Uh, Ignatius and Polycarp and Papias. Um, you don't, that's all nerdy details. You don't need to know it. Um, I will say this one thing, uh, the last thing, is we have three, um, we mentioned this before, Pliny the Younger writes a letter to, um, to the emperor complaining about the Christians. He's like, they believe in this guy Christ. Uh, they worship on Sundays. They have deaconesses from the, uh, the, the lower class. And all of these people, they're, none of them are going to the temple anymore, right? And they believe that this Christ is God, right? So there's, there, is, there is a Roman governor in Bithynia complaining about the Christians, but it gives us details. Um, Josephus is a Jewish historian that mentions John the Baptist um, and James, tells us that James died in 62, so that's a little bit. Um, and then we have Tacitus that talks about uh, Christians uh, and uh, their, their leader was crucified and that it spread to Rome very quickly. So all these things are backed up right in the New Testament. By themselves, no big deal. But it just doesn't read like a fake. That's the point there, okay? Okay, let's talk prophecies for a second. I think this is a big one. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Say that again. Oh, yeah. So why, when they wrote ancient documents, why didn't they put dates on the whatever? Sometimes they would in this way. Like if you read the Old Testament, you'll, you'll read, in the 14th year of the king of blah, blah, blah. That's how you, that's how you would date things. So notice um, <clears throat> that I, I think... For the ancients, they were not so much concerned about that unless they were specifically recording something that would have been like archived. So if I read First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, you're always telling me what year of what person's reign is, and so that was a different kind of document. It's um, also, uh, again, Matthew and Mark and John especially um, are, are writing pastorally um, they, they want this information to go out for your soul. They're not thinking like we think. We are so much historically minded, chronologically kind of minded. But notice Luke kind of does. Luke says, well, Caesar Augustus, right, and the Quirinius was governor of Syria, and that's because Luke is coming from a more Greek mindset who would, they would be a little bit more minded about history and dates. It doesn't seem like the Jewish authors are that concerned with it. And I think um, they're trying to get to your soul. They don't think in our Western modern way, 
I have to prove it to you. They're just recounting what happened. They're telling you a story. Let me, I know I'm all over the place here, but um, when I was in uh, graduate school, I met um, um, a um, Christian who was ethnically Jewish, and he had converted from Judaism to Christianity. So I, I set him aside. I said, all right, tell this, tell this guy, me, uh, if I didn't know one thing about the Old Testament, and he immediately said it's story. He didn't mean myth. He meant that we, Jewish people write in story. We think in outlines, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. It's just not their way of thinking. Is that fair enough? Yep. Yes. Uh, pretty similar with contemporary Jewish authors. That I don't, don't, I don't think I can speak educationally enough, yeah, yeah, educated enough, yeah. Jumping back to the fact that uh, they were fishermen, yeah. and they were Jewish fishermen, yeah. I mean, isn't the Hebrew culture to memorize the Torah? So they had those stories in their yeah. minds all the time, so they were educated in Judaism. Yeah. How, how much they knew in Galilee, we don't know, but certainly the idea of memorizing whole chunks, like uh, in Islam, memorizing whole chunks, uh, that is completely lost. My, my supervising pastor was a vicar had Romans 1 through 8 memorized. Mm -hmm. So I was just thinking that that helps with the Yep. Yep. I think so. And why do I assume that they never did that? Why do I, you know what I mean? That's, a, that's, a, that's an a priori from somebody who has an agenda. And I think we have to point that out to people. I may have my agenda that's pro-Christian. I get that. But definitely you have one too as well. Yeah. Is that fair enough? Yeah. 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 Um, so, are you saying that they they would have faked the prophecies, or that if the opposite, it would prove? Let's get into it. That's the next step. Read my mind. Um, <laughs> You asked my father a few years ago? Yeah. I can guarantee he got it wrong. No. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, so I think this is a big one, prophecy, because if something is predicted and comes true, that's kind of a game changer, right? So let's think about prophecy in three different ways. Um, there is prophecy that is um, prophecy that is something so vague that for apologetic purposes, it doesn't really matter. There's going to be a king who comes. <laughs> well, that's, there's been lots of... What do you mean by king? There is ones that are specific, but theoretically could be faked. Riding a donkey to Jerusalem is specific, but it could be faked. Jesus could have theoretically said to his disciples, go get me a donkey. Why? We got to do this thing. Zechariah said, just do it, okay? All right. I'm, try, I'm, try, I'm faking being the Messiah. All right. But then there are things that are highly specific that could not have been faked. You don't choose where you're born, born in Bethlehem. Um, um, that he was going to be betrayed by 30, uh, by his friend, by 30 pieces of silver. That's a big one. Um, they're going to gamble for his clothes. I mean, I suppose he could have come down from the cross and he's like, hey guys, could you gamble for my clothes? But I don't think that's one there. He's already dead when they choose not to break his bones. 
right? Um, I can, let's say I can get to like eight of those. What are the odds of that? Let's play this game. I'll give you one in four odds that all Jewish men were born in Bethlehem in the first century. It's one in whatever, but I'll give you one in four. Let's say one in four of those Jewish men that were born in Bethlehem, I will say one in four were betrayed by their friends for 30 pieces of silver. It's one in a gazillion, but I'll give you one in four. I'll give you one in four that they were crucified on the cross and they didn't break their bones, even though the soldiers like to do that, so the hands to death. I'll give you one in four that he had a garment that was going to be gambled. I can give you one in four that when he asked for something, uh, for when he asked for water, they're going to give him wine vinegar. And I, I start going like, this is really large, the number one in whatever. Now, <clears throat> some people say, well, theoretically, these events, the probability of these events and any other set of events is all equal. And then I say, you don't live your life that way, pal. <laughs> right? You don't live your life that way. Right? What are the odds of all of this happening? And that they would have been predicted and came true. Now, someone may say, well, maybe all of this stuff was fudged later on. Well, back to the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have a full scroll of Isaiah that is scribally dated to about 125 years before Christ. What's scribal dating? I'm glad you asked. All right, when we study like, like how you write letters, we can pinpoint when you wrote. Just like that guy could say, you were from California. Right, so a different font in German or something like that. For instance, if uh, you have an estate sale or uh, you know, you're in probate with uh, some family member and some cousin Billy from, you know, who's been living wherever in the desert comes out and he's got this document that says he has a right to the estate, right? And that your father wrote this in 1955 or whatever and it's like Comic Sans font. <laughs> you're like, well, I'm pretty sure I can sniff out that one. That one's a fake, right? We can do that. We can do that. So this is, this is scribal dated to be about 100 to 150 AD. This is, this is when they wrote. There's some uh, uh, um, uh, carbon dating that backs up. The point is it is BC before Christ. So if you read through Isaiah 52 and 53, um, well, as my Jewish uh, classmate would say, that's the what convinced me that Jesus was the Christ. Yeah. So now it is... A little vague, I mean, you'd have, but you really have to like not, you really have to like purposely not see Jesus, that he was pierced for our iniquities, right? All of these kinds of pictures. Read 52 and 53 when you get home. It's such a, such a favorite uh, passage, uh, section of scripture for all Christians, right? And you go, that was written before her, and then it came true in her. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. So I think prophecy does point to the reliability of Scripture and specifically that Jesus is the Christ. Right? Okay, it's noon right now. Um, I know some of you uh, have other places to go, and that's fine. If you are going to come back, um, we're going to talk science and philosophy and art. And even I'm going to try to make the case to you that beauty is objective. That beauty is not in the eye of the beholder and is objective. I may or may not be right about that, but we'll, I'm going to try anyway. So uh, thank you for coming and putting up with me for two hours. Hopefully I'll see some of you in the afternoon. All right.